Let me just mention a couple of things. First of all, I've received a card from Margaret Beach with regard to her recent bereavement, which I'll just read out to you. Dear church family, thank you all for your prayers, support, and messages of sympathy. Thank you also for the meals, cakes, and other gifts that were so kindly and thoughtfully given. Thank you to everyone who helped with the funeral and with the refreshments afterwards thanking God for all the love and kindness shown to me and my family. Love, Margaret. 
I'll put that on the notice board afterwards <clears throat> if you want to have another look at it. And then just to mention that we are meeting again at 6 p.m. this evening. That will include time around the Lord's Supper, carrying on in Matthew's Gospel, and I hope that you can join us for that. It's nice to learn something new when we come to church, but there is something much more important than that. It's crucial that we're reminded of the central truths of Christianity. Those are the truths we take a stand on. Those are the truths we build our lives on. And there are no truths more central than these. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's nice to learn new things, but we must never forget these things. Apart from Jesus, we're lost. But in Christ, we are saved. In Christ, we have unshakable hope. And our first song helps us to focus on this reality. Boldly, I approach.
Let's pray. Lord God, we are so blessed to sit here blameless, free from condemnation because of Jesus. And so whatever has been occupying our thoughts this weekend, whether that's good or bad, now in these moments, we come back to this greatest of all truths, that we who were born in sin, who could not help ourselves, are now welcomed as your own. We thank you for all you've done to save us from the guilt of our sin and from the destiny we were headed for, an eternity of being lost away from you. We thank you that in Christ we are accepted and brought near to you, not just for today but forever. And this morning, whatever fears we have, whether they're legitimate fears or unfounded fears, Will you help us to put them in perspective as we focus on this greatest truth? We are loved by God the Father Almighty, and his perfect love drives out fear. Will you drive out our fear as we focus on your great salvation? We pray this too for those who can't be with us today. We think especially of Annette Grimmett in hospital. Pray that she will know your love that drives out fear, and for Morris as well. And at his own request, we pray today for Lewis Crutchley in prison. Will you free Lewis from his sin and his addictions through faith in Jesus Christ? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a Bible reading now that tells us how carefully God brought salvation into the world. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Our next song asks the question, who, O Lord, could save themselves? And the song also answers the question, you alone can rescue.
the Sunday school are going to be moving next door. I know some of you like to read ahead each week in preparation for Sunday. 
And if you happen to read Judges chapter 12 in preparation for today, you probably had a sense of deja vu. We've seen this before. I say that because at the beginning of chapter 12, we find the Ephraimites behaving just like we've seen them behave before. They're the Israelite tribe who freaked out with Gideon back in chapter 8 because they didn't feel they got enough prominence in the battle against the Midianites. And in their self-importance, the Ephraimites acted like total divas in that situation. And in chapter 12, the grandchildren of those Ephraimites do it all over again, this time with Jephthah. They get themselves all worked up and they accuse Jephthah of fighting the Ammonites without calling them. Jephthah says, I did call you, but you didn't come. And the whole thing escalates into a slaughter. Israelite killing Israelite until 42,000 Israelites are dead. Then there's more deja vu in the second part of chapter 12. We hear about the judges Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Together they led Israel for a combined total of 25 years. But they're mentioned in chapter 12 with only the barest of details. Although we do hear about donkeys again. They're the favorite transport of the rich and famous at this time. And we're told that Abdon's sons and grandsons each had one. So it seems to have been a prosperous time without any heavy oppression from enemies. But we get the sense that things in Israel are just pithering along with nothing much to report. There's a degree of peace and calm, but there's no evidence of particular commitment to the Lord. And so we can guess that this peace and calm is not going to last. And sure enough, as we turn this morning to chapter 13, we find a familiar pattern. First, there's a resurgence of evil, and then come the consequences that always follow evil. Israel enters a new time of oppression. So it's a familiar pattern to us by now. But as we read this, look out for something that is missing this time around. We're going to read Judges chapter 13, the whole chapter. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. And I see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, you will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, 
pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. And Noah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We're doomed to die, he said to his wife. We've seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. This is God's word, and it is a nativity. A nativity is a birth story. This is a birth story of Samson. Samson means little son or sunny boy. But if you're at all familiar with the nativity, the one we find in the New Testament, you will notice some similarities. And that shouldn't be surprising. After all, the God who sent Jesus into the world is the same God we see at work here in the book of Judges. And so we can expect this nativity in Judges to show us truths about God and his salvation. And maybe these truths will come to us in a fresh way here because we're not so familiar with this nativity. To begin with, we find darkness, gloom, and hopelessness. Verse 1 gives us what seems to be the same old story of Israel at this time. They do evil, and the Lord gives them into the hands of their enemies. This time, it's the Philistines. 
The Philistines aren't actually Canaanites. They arrived in Canaan at roughly the same time the Israelites did. And they came from the sea, from this direction. And their settlements are all clustered in this western part of Canaan. And from there, they then squeeze the Israelites. If you remember back in chapter 11, the Israelites were being squeezed from the exact opposite direction. The Ammonites came to them from the east. So here in chapter 13, the name of the enemy and the direction of the enemy attack has changed, but the story remains the same. And yet it's not quite the same. Before we read this chapter, I asked you to look out for what's missing. Something is missing right at the start. Did anyone notice what it was? What has happened every other time that doesn't happen this time? Exactly. We've come to expect that after hearing about Israel being oppressed by their enemies, the next thing that will happen is Israel will cry out to the Lord. That's been the same every time since chapter 3 but not this time. We're told Israel is oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years, but there is no mention of them crying out to the Lord. And that means we have reached a new low point in this book. Because if we ask why the Israelites don't cry out, I think the answer has to be their morale has sunk so low they just don't have any hope left. They have no strength even to cry out for deliverance. And in verse 2, we're introduced to a couple who seem to illustrate the darkness, gloom, and hopelessness of Israel. Verse 2 says, A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. Manoah is the longer form of the name Noah which means rest. And I wonder if that's why his name is mentioned over and over again in this passage, while his wife's name isn't mentioned at all. It's certainly not that Manoah is more important than his wife. As we'll see, she's actually the one God pays the most attention to in all this. I wonder if Manoah's name is mentioned so much because it means rest. And rest is what the Israelites are longing for. They are aching for rest, even while they've given up all hope of finding it. In any case, Manoah and his wife are suffering their own private and personal gloom. The pain and disappointment of childlessness. So all around, this is a bleak picture. No hope for the longings of this couple or for the longings of Israel to be fulfilled. And that means we have the perfect conditions for God's salvation. When human beings are at a loss, when we truly come to see our hopelessness, then we are ready for God's salvation. We can see that if we fast forward to think about the nativity, the birth of Jesus Christ. 
Long before Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah foretold it with these words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And that prophecy goes on to speak about the child who will be born. And in the New Testament, hundreds of years after Isaiah's prophecy, we find these words being spoken about Jesus, who at this point is already in Mary's womb. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. God does not bring salvation to those who feel secure and self-sufficient. They don't realize they need salvation. And they're not ready to receive it. When all human hope has gone, that is when we are ready to be saved. If you're not a Christian, and if your life has bombed, if it seems to have fallen apart or to be in the process of falling apart, then you are ready to be saved. You've always needed to be saved, but you've not been ready. Now, though, if you have seen the hopelessness of everything else you've tried, you are ready for the saving work only God can do. Here in Judges, the conditions are right. And verse 3 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to her, that's Manoah's wife, and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that, no, that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Literally, he will begin to deliver Israel. He won't finish the job. His work will be incomplete, but he will begin the work. That's the end of the angel's announcement. The beginning of it is that this couple will finally be able to conceive. And we understand those bits, I think. But what about the bit in the middle? Well, the key is the word Nazarite. That does not mean somebody from Nazareth. It has no connection with that place in Israel. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, we find out what a Nazarite is. It's a person who voluntarily takes a vow to dedicate themselves to God for a specific amount of time. Last week, we saw Jephthah make a terrible vow to sacrifice somebody else's life. That was forbidden in God's law. But a Nazarite vow was about dedicating yourself to God. It was supported by God's law. You can read the details of it in Numbers chapter 6. A Nazarite vow included three commitments. During the time of the vow, the person would not eat or drink anything that came from the vine. So no wine, no grapes, no raisins. That was the first commitment. Then second, during the time of the vow, you wouldn't cut your hair. And third, during the time of the vow, you would not go near a dead body. 
What was the purpose of those commitments? Did they have any point? Well, the untrimmed hair was an announcement to everybody who saw you that you were dedicated to God. And the other two commitments involved foregoing the normal routines of life. Abstaining from wine, grapes, and raisins meant you couldn't fully participate in celebrations. And of course, avoiding dead bodies meant you couldn't fully participate in mourning. So altogether, the Nazarite commitments made you stand out as a person dedicated to God. And here in Judges 13, the significance is the same. But what is different is that it's not voluntary and it's not temporary. In the case of this child, later we discover the child will be dedicated to God until the day of his death. And he's already dedicated to God in the womb before he's born. And it's because of that that the mother has to live like a Nazarite herself while she's pregnant with the child. And the message here is that salvation is God's work all the way. One writer says this about Judges 13. The Lord didn't merely raise up a deliverer who was already available. The Lord grew one from scratch. Israel had no candidates for the job. Israel was too low even to hope for salvation at this point. Never mind provide their own savior. And as the account unfolds here, it becomes clear the Lord is not going to stop at conception or birth. This will not be a case of the Lord giving this couple a child and hoping they can turn him into Israel's savior. No, God is going to see this through right to the very end. That becomes clear once Manoah himself starts getting involved. Remember, so far the angel has only appeared to Manoah's wife. So in verse 6, she goes to her husband and she tells him what has happened. And Manoah feels a bit put out by the way this has gone so far. Isn't he going to be the dad? Why didn't the Lord come and talk to him about this? It's a bit of a knock to his pride. And so he prays in verse 8, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. But the Lord's message was clear. Bring him up as a Nazarite. And I think we're to see a bit of humor here in the Lord's response to Manoah's prayer. In verse 9, God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband, Manoah, was not with her. God heard Manoah and again came to see Manoah's wife instead of Manoah. God is not going to cater to this man's pride. Then when the lady goes and gets her husband, the angel is very unaccommodating with Manoah. Verse 10, the woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, your wife must do all that I have told her. 
She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah is just dying for more information. In verse 12, asking about the rule that governs the boy's life and work, that's a question about his destiny. Manoah wants more information. He wants to know how he can take charge and shape this boy. But all Manoah gets from the angel is, it's all sorted, pal. I explained it to your wife. The boy is dedicated to the Lord. Just make sure he knows that. That's all you need to know. God will shape the boy. God will take care of the boy's mission and destiny. Manoah is being shown that salvation is God's work all the way. Not only is God growing a savior in the womb from scratch, when the child comes out of the womb, God is not going to let Manoah take it from there. God will shape the child's life and destiny all the way. Manoah knows all he needs to know. The child is dedicated to God, treat him that way, God will take care of the salvation. And if we again fast forward to the nativity in the New Testament, we do not find Mary and Joseph being given a miraculous child and then left to oversee his destiny. It is not a case of them being given the child to see what they can make of the opportunity. No, as we read the New Testament, we see that Jesus' destiny unfolded with the closest possible involvement of his Father in heaven. Salvation is way too important to rest on human ability. Even the ability of good people like Joseph and Mary or Manoah and his wife. Salvation is God's work all the way. And in your life too, when it comes to your own salvation, don't get the idea that God gets things started for you. He forgives you and he sets you on the road to heaven. Then you've got to make the rest of the way yourself. That's not God's way. Salvation is way too important to leave any part of it in our hands. The only thing you and I bring to God is our inability. He provides the rest. We come to God hopeless, we come lost in our sin, and he gives us Jesus. Through Jesus, he provides the forgiveness we need, and God's Holy Spirit provides the perseverance we need every day to go on living for Jesus, to get back up when we stumble, when we fall in our faces, and the Spirit guides us when we have no clue even which way to go. He directs us, He supplies us with strength until we finally arrive in God's presence. Saved, not by our own achievement or resilience, but by God's grace. Grace takes us all the way. Manoah wanted to know more about the child God had given him. 
But the angel has refused to tell him. God will take care of it. But Manoah is incurably inquisitive. He's determined, because he can't find out about the child, he's going to find out about the angel. Verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Earlier in this book, we noticed there is some ambiguity over who exactly the angel of the Lord is. Is it an angel representing the Lord with the Lord's full authority? Or is this the Lord himself in angelic or even human form? My own sense is this is an angel who represents the Lord. He represents the Lord to such a degree that the writer of Judges can sometimes refer to him as the Lord. And we can see that close identification again in this passage. In one sense, the angel seems to be distinct from the Lord, because he says in verse 16, I won't eat your food, offer your sacrifice to the Lord. But then in verse 18, when Manoah has asked the angel for his name, he replies, it is beyond understanding. Literally, it is wonderful. Today, we tend to use the word wonderful to mean great, as in, that was a wonderful meal we had. But in the Bible, wonderful means beyond human comprehension. So here, saying to Manoah, my name is beyond understanding, the sense of it is, the Lord is too much for you to grasp. His character and his work are more than you could ever take in. And that is the Bible's consistent portrayal of God. Of course, we can truly know some things about him. It's not as if we're, he's completely unknown to us. God has gone to great lengths to reveal a lot of himself to us in Scripture. And he has told us plenty about his work as well. So we can genuinely know God. But the point here is, we will never know him exhaustively. We will never have him all figured out. We'll never get to the bottom of his greatness and his ways. And that's a good thing. If God was small enough for you and me to grasp completely, he would not be as big as we need him to be. Big enough to work out his purposes in all of history. And even in the small details of your life and my life. We can be both humbled and reassured by the truth that the God of salvation is greater than we can understand. In Manoah's case, he learns this not only when the angel says, my name is wonderful, Manoah learns about God's wonderfulness and what happens next. The offering on the rock gets consumed by fire. 
and the angel exits the scene in the flame. That blows Manoah's mind, as it would for any of us. And he says to his wife in verse 22, we're doomed to die, we've seen God. I'm not sure who Manoah thought he was talking to earlier, but now the seriousness of all this has dawned on him. He realizes he's dealing with God, and he knows God's presence is deadly to sinful people. But Manoah's wife knows something else about God. She sees something else here. She sees his grace. His grace in accepting the death of the offering instead of their death. In verse 23, she says, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. There is more for Manoah to learn about God. He was right about God's total holiness and purity. He was right to have a healthy fear of God in that sense. But there was more to learn. God's grace in burning up the sacrifice instead of them. God's grace in working through them with this child. And there's always more for you and me to learn. Maybe we've got a good handle on God's holiness. We know what it is to fear and reverence Him. But maybe we still need to grasp the welcome He gives to sinners because of Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross. On the other hand, maybe we are well versed in God's great love, but we need to understand His deep hatred of sin. For all of us, no matter how much we know, God will always remain wonderful to us. He will always be greater than we can fully understand. And His character and His purposes and how He works those purposes out in our lives. So don't be surprised or upset when you find yourself saying, I can't see what God is up to in my situation. Or I can't see what he's up to in the wider world situation. It is no surprise at all that God and his ways are wonderful to you and me. He's God and we're not. But the beautiful thing is we can trust him even when we don't understand. We can trust him because he sent us a savior. Whatever things we don't understand, we know he is for us. Because in our darkness and gloom and hopelessness, when we could do nothing to help ourselves, God took action. He didn't go searching for the best you and I could do, the best the human race could come up with and then try to make something of it. It was all God's own work from start to finish. And so whatever things we don't understand, we know he is for us. 
We've seen that here in Judges 13, in this foreshadowing of the nativity. The end of the passage tells us in verse 24, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtaol. We saw earlier, Samson means little son, sonny boy. His birth is a ray of hope in Israel, like a sunrise in the darkness. God will not let this people die. Despite all their failure and their apathy towards him, very often their bold-faced defiance of him, God is at work on their behalf. The child's mother recognizes that and she names the child accordingly. He is a light in a dark place at a dark time. And as he grows, the Spirit of the Lord begins to stir him. The Spirit will drive Samson to fulfill his destiny. God will leave nothing to chance. And in an infinitely greater way, at the nativity of Jesus Christ, a light came into the world. The light came. God the Son himself. Emmanuel. And Jesus came not to save a small nation for a few years, but to save the whole people of God for eternity. And again, in the life and death of Jesus, God left nothing to chance. The book of Acts tells us even the wicked men who nailed Jesus to the cross, they did so by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. When it came to the salvation of the world, God left nothing to chance. And Jesus was truly able to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So even when we don't understand our lives and our situation, we can trust God. We know he is for us because of Jesus. Whatever else we don't have, in Jesus, we have the light of life. Our last song describes the wonder of Jesus' nativity. And it reminds us of what his nativity means for us today and in the future. Silently we watch as our God steps down.
the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.